buried by a whole tractor trailer load of wood chips. So he heard the horn blowing, and he just started digging by hand while he was calling for help. That guy was a true hero. But anyway, he dug down by the grace of God and a miracle. As he was digging towards where he heard the horn coming from, he dug right to the passenger in the car's face, got the wood chips away where she was able to breathe. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And uh, joining me today is uh, somebody, have you ever been in a fire? Did you ever ride a fire truck? Nope. Never rode a fire Strictly truck. Strictly 100% EMS. But was was a huge influence in Chesterfield Fire and EMS while I was there, uh, working out of the training division. And uh, he's got an interesting history in his background and uh, certainly an influencer within the EMS community in and around Richmond for sure. And uh, I'm excited to talk to him today because we're going to talk a little bit about his history a little bit of history of uh, some stuff you might have heard before on this podcast, uh, but in a previous episode, and we'll get into that. And uh, basically, at the end, there'll be an ask for support for a help for a worthy cause here, so stay tuned. So with that, please welcome to the podcast the one and only Harry Baird. Harry, good to see you, brother. Thank you, Robbie. I appreciate your invitation to be part of this, and um, I'm honored and pleased to be a part of it, and uh, hope I'll do right by you I, no, I have no doubt you will um and you and i were talking earlier and I, I've, I've said this before and i'll say it here publicly that um a lot of times you talk about people who are quote unquote saving lives in the field and i've always attributed it to the the people who trained those who were actually delivering the care and uh you know our my experience with you has been more in the fire and ems side with chesterfield you being in the training division that i've always said that how many emts and paramedics did you train over the years that had the skills that actually saved the lives. So uh, tip of the hat to you for saving all those lives from the classroom. So uh, I, th- I think you made a tremendous impact on, on us as an organization over the years. So thanks for doing that. Well, I appreciate your kind words, but at the end of the day, it's the guys and girls in the field that do the intubations and start the IVs and the defibrillation and stop the profuse bleeding and uh, treat the anaphylaxis and all those other maladies that affect our citizens. Somebody, and, uh, somebody, they're the ones that deserve the credit, but I appreciate your kind words. Man, it's a team effort all the way from training to, to the end result. So, uh, well, let's go back in the Wayback Machine and find out how you got your start in this uh, public safety business and uh, where you came from. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a town called Petersburg, Virginia, about 20 miles south of Richmond, Virginia, the capital of Virginia, a small town of about 35,000, 40,000 people. Uh, I moved there when I was eight years old, and I lived there until I was 31. I actually was born in Richmond, and I lived in a little small town in southern Dinwiddie County until I was eight, a little small town called McKinney. Um, population about 200, kind of like Andy of Mayberry, if you will, and I lived there. Went to the first and second grade there, and then uh, my father took a different job, and we moved to Petersburg, and I lived there all my years growing up, and uh, went going through school there and playing ball there and what have you and uh, had a had a lot of wonderful memories. I, I grew up in a great neighborhood. It was it was the kids in that neighborhood. We've been friends now for 60 years. We still get together three or four or five times a year and have a group dinner together and birthday parties and that sort of thing. So we've remained very close. And it I can't imagine growing up in a better environment. You think that's just because of the nature of being a small town and not I mean the people there are connected from. I think it was a combination of being a small town, 
we all went to school together. We all played ball together. We played music. We had a little garage band played together and stuff like oh, that. That, and that explains your singing talent I've heard just moments <laughs> ago. So we'll talk our, about that too. In our teenage years and uh, <laughs> just a lot of good memories. But we, we were in a kind of a uh, secluded subdivision off of one of the main arteries in town. And we had 72 houses back there. And we had probably... 25 kids within five years of age of one another, half boys, half girls. And we did everything together. We played sandlot football together. We played basketball. My backyard was a basketball neighborhood for the neighborhood. My dad had put floodlights on the back of the house so we could illumine the backyard and play basketball till 9, 10 o'clock at night on school nights. Um, we also had another kid a block over who had a a basement where we would have our little garage band playing in the wintertime and in the summertime we had a screened in back porch where we would we would turn crank, the volume up there. turn the volume up in the neighborhood and we would say we packed the stands every night all the kids <laughs> in the neighborhood would come running like ants at a picnic they'd come running and they thought we would have found a thing since last bread and we had so many good times together and us 25 kids like i said half boys half girls uh we were young at that time. We didn't look at it from a romantic standpoint, although one of the guys in the neighborhood did marry one of the girls. But we uh, we just did everything together. We played ball together. We went swimming together. We went sleigh riding together, bowling together, camping, everything. Just It was great. I can't imagine growing up in a better place. Yeah, cool. Where did uh, How did you get involved on the EMS side of the shop, and when did, uh, when did all that happen? I was a sophomore in college. I had uh, gone away to school. Where'd you go? I went to a, a, a junior college in northeastern North Carolina in a place called Murfreesboro, about 30 miles east of Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. It was called Chowan College. Chowan, yeah. Now it's a four-year school. It's called Chowan University. So I went there my first two years to study accounting. And accounting is a very difficult curriculum. I, had to, I was desirous of becoming a CPA, Certified Public Accountant. And I was working myself to death. I was in the library every night, three to four hours, going in back to class in the afternoon, getting one-on-one tutorial from the accountant teacher. It was a tough curriculum, but I, I did extremely well academically and made out fine. But in my sophomore year, I said, I've got to have a mental break. You know, like some guys have a bowling league on Monday nights yeah. or the rescue squad on Friday nights or whatever. So this particular second year, my sophomore year, I said, you know, i got to have a little bit of a break. So... At the time, this was the fall of 74 until the spring of 75, um, the, uh, there was a TV show on NBC on Saturday nights at 8 o'clock. And a lot of people my age, which is 69 now, uh, watched it religiously, and it was called Emergency. Johnny and Roy. Roy DeSoto and Johnny it's, Gage. It's actually still on, like, uh, one of the... Net, one of the rerun networks i've got it recorded every episode man <laughs> so i can go back and do my pre do my research training yeah it was great and i used to watch that religiously every saturday night and i thought man this is the life so when i went back to start my sophomore year the fall of 1975 i said i got to have a little bit of mental break from studying accounting and economics every night so i went across the hall to this kid that lived across the hall and went in his room and i said hey mark you, uh, you want to go grab some dinner at the cafeteria? He said, yeah, in just a minute. And I looked down on his bed, and he's got this book there called Emergency Care. Well, I think you know where this is going. <laughs> I sat down and started thumbing through the book. I couldn't put it down. It was the old Brady book, The Emergency Care, the gotcha. yellow book. I've still got that book. Got its hooks in you. And I read that bad boy 
for I don't know hour and a half. Point point being, the light, the cafeteria closed, <laughs> so we missed supper. And he said, "Are you that interested in that?" I said, "Man, I think this is the neatest thing." So he said, we're getting ready to have an EMT class offered at the rescue squad here in town, and they're going to open it up to some of the college students if you'd like to go. Well, he's on a rescue squad in the Virginia Beach area. I said, yeah, I think I'd like to try it. So it was four of us kids from the college took this EMT class every Wednesday night from September until the following March, from 7 to 10. And I was, as we say, quote, unquote, ate up with it. I immersed myself in the book, and I tried to get 100 on every test because my mindset was the one bit of information that I miss might be the one that's impacting you or your loved one. The one you need. And so I tried to learn every single bit of that information that I could and try to absorb it like a sponge, and I was 21 years old, something like that, and was just so eager to learn. So when I finished the MT class, I took the, this was in North Carolina, so I took the state of North Carolina exam, passed it, and two months later, I graduated after my completion of my second year, went back home to Petersburg. And at the time, uh, Petersburg had an organization, and they still do, known as the South South Virginia Emergency Crew. It's the ambulance service that serves the, Peter, the city of the Petersburg. City. And at that time, we also covered the city of Colonial Heights, our neighbor just to the north. It was a busy rescue squad. At the time, we ran about 6,000 calls a year. Today, they run about 10,000 calls a year. But it was all volunteer, except for two people. We had two paid personnel. Everybody else was volunteer. Well, when I finished the EMT course, I had worked really hard, really hard. I'd poured my heart and soul into it for eight, nine months. And I had never had any experience with any patient care before. And so I didn't know if the blood, guts, and gore would bother me or not. But I thought, I'm not going to know unless I give it a try. So I applied for, I took the EMT test on March the 10th, 1976. And on March 18th, I applied to the South South Virginia Emergency Crew, telling them that in two months I'd be home from college and I'd like to be a member. I'd heard good things about them. So two months go by. I graduate college on Sunday, May 16th. And on Tuesday night, May 18th, 1976, they voted me in. And I loved it. I fell in love with it. And I was just ate up with it. So how, just, many, how many days a week were you there when you were home from college on, I was a on sing, summer break? I was a single guy. Single. And I was there six to seven days a <laughs> That's week. That's right. And I loved it. And we, uh, I ran many, many calls, and I was like 18, 19, 20 days into it. And on the morning, so I started May 18th, 1976, and on the morning of June 10th, 1976, we got a mutual aid call to the next county to our south, Prince George County, Virginia. And we had an automobile fatality young kid, 21-year-old 20, college kid, was killed in a real freak accident, um, got run off the road by a, a truck hauling wood chips to a Continental Can, a paper manufacturer down at Hopewell, another neighboring municipality. And the truck went over, ran over top of this little MG that this guy and his girlfriend were in and rode, they rode them down the embankment and they were, embankment and they were buried under all the wood chips. Um, an on-duty Prince George police officer responded to the call, got there within about a minute, and he could hear the horn blowing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have known a car was buried under all those wood chips. Oh, so he couldn't even see any of that. He couldn't MG. see any. They were buried by a whole tractor trailer load of wood chips. So he heard the horn blowing, and he just started digging by hand while he was calling for help. That guy was a true hero. But anyway, he dug down by the grace of God and a miracle. As he was digging towards where he heard the horn coming from, he dug right to the passenger in the car's face got the wood chips away where she was able to breathe and um, they were a young couple from Florida 
going up to Maine where she lived. They had just gotten out of college. And um, mm. anyway, th- it took a real blow to me. So I stepped back for about three weeks and said, man, this is hard because I what if that thing, six ways to Sunday, Robbie, what if they had been in the other lane? What if they'd been 100 mm-hmm. feet in front of this truck? What if? And anyway, uh, the boy was dead on the scene, but the girl survived. And um, I turned around and uh, stepped back for about three weeks. And afterwards, I said, you get thrown off the horse, buddy. You better get back on. So I get back, I got back on, and I never looked back. And I've ran active with them for 20 years. And I've been an EMT now for 47 years and a paramedic for almost 30 years. And uh, I just loved it. I, you know, if somebody offered me a million dollars cash versus I would have to give up the memories, the friendships, the experiences, the camaraderie, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't take the money because the people that I connected with and the, the experiences I was able to experience was wonderful. And in the ensuing 47 years, a good part of that, I was, I was a volunteer then, but a good part of the ensuing 47 years, I've been a, I was a paid person. And they say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I can't imagine going through life and not loving what you do, you know? And I just couldn't believe I was being paid to do what I did, whether it was working the streets or whether it was in training. I've often said that society didn't dictate I had to make a living. I would have done what I did for free. <laughs> well, I, you know, you mentioned that, that call in March of 76. And there's always those calls that stick with you. And that one obviously is one that, that sticks with you because that, that kind of. That was my first fatality. That, that hit you hard because it was first and it was kind of like a turning point for you to either turn one way or the other. And yeah. thankfully you came back to the to mm-hmm. the business. So it's it's clear that. Everybody talks about that one incident from well, years, When you're 21 decades. years old, you don't typically think about dying. Right. And I thought about that kid just getting out of class, about halfway home mm-hmm. en route to Maine to visit his girlfriend's family. Never make it. And his life is snuffed out in the blink of an eye. You know, it's just it really uh, like a kick to the stomach, so to speak. Right. You know, it was a hard blow. Well, on a uh, little bit of a lighter note, let me ask you this question. This one pop, pop, popped into my head while you were talking through that the whole scenario is you got your – North Carolina EMT certification and came back to Virginia. How did that work? Did you have to do anything in Virginia? Because this was pre-National Registry Day. Yeah, absolutely. Before what did the you National have to do when you came to Virginia to, to ride at Southside? Robbie, you got to remember it's been 47 years. <laughs> but, <you're laughs> but I have a memory like a steel you trap. You do that, man. You so as I recall, <laughs> uh, Virginia recognized me for one year, and then I had to go take the written test in Virginia. As I, I believe is what happened, and I passed that, and I've been a Virginia EMT, and then subsequently nationally registered EMT for years since. So they kind of you got a year's reciprocity, yes. and then you had to go prove yourself. Yeah, oh, that's not too yeah. bad. No, it's a little more complicated than that these days. Yeah, like, if you're, if you're well, not registry nowadays, if you get that national registry, you're pretty good. Yeah, true. You're pretty good to go where you need to go true. or want to go. Well, what uh, at what point did you decide? Because obviously you started in Southside as an EMT. What made you pull the trigger and go to go to paramedic school and where'd you go to paramedic school did you go to the college i went to medical college of virginia in richmond what um, year did you graduate there 1994 all right i was a little bit ahead of you yeah so you beat me to the ambulance <laughs> but i beat you to the paramedic program <laughs> yeah yeah how was that what was uh what was a paramedic program at mcv like back in the it was 90s? great it was great pat saunders was the lead instructor but we had physicians teach virtually every class and jay gould uh, was in charge of the paramedic program, the Center for Trauma and Critical Care Education, then, and he still is now. 
Um, I loved it. I was, again, I had been an EMT for 16 years before I took the paramedic class, but I loved it. It was, to me, it was fascinating learning how God created you, the human body, and how it's in the simplest form a very simple organism, but yet it's a very complex organism and how everything is interrelated with how the body works. And Medical College of Virginia Level 1 Trauma Center course is called VCU Health Systems now, but I'm old school. I still call, I call it, it MCV or the college or whatever you want to call the it. The Miracle College, the Medical yeah. College of Virginia. Yeah. And the irony was that's the hospital I was born in. Really? Yep. July 12, 1954. That's where I came out of, uh, into this world kicking. And uh, so I, I knew MCV was held in very high esteem, and I really wanted to, I had a burning desire to try to learn the material, and I did. And I had some good mentors along the way. I worked with a fella. At that time, I was working in the training division for Chesterfield Fire and EMS in Chesterfield, Virginia. Again, huge county just south of Richmond, Virginia, probably 330,000 people. Today, uh, Chesterfield Fire and EMS runs about 50,000 calls a year, of which about 75 to 80% are EMS calls. And one of the mentors and people that I work with is one of the people you know is John Kirtley. And I worked for 28 years as the BLS, the Basic Life Support Training Programs Manager. And John worked as the ALS, Advanced Life Support Trainings Programs Manager. Initially, when I got in, we had a fellow named Dr. Hugh Hemsley as our operational medical director for a short while. And then we hired Dr. Alfred Gervin, who was a trauma surgeon at MCV for a number of years. And then today, we have Dr. Alan Yee and three tremendously smart people. And the way I looked at it, Robbie, when I was in paramedic school, I looked at it and I thought, this is not the same curriculum that a medical student takes to become a physician, but I had the same people teaching me that these medical student kids are paying 250 to $500,000 for an education. Yep. And I was getting it basically for free. And I thought, if I'm afforded this opportunity to learn at the feet of the masters, why wouldn't I apply myself and try to do everything I can to absorb as much of that information as possible? You're right, and those, those medical directors were amazing. I, I got to work really closely with Al Gervin as the MedFlight paramedic program medical director. Um, I think he was, he was our medical director for MedFlight while Hugh Hemsley was at fire departments. And then mm -hmm. Gervin got the fire department and MedFlight. And then obviously Dr. E got, gets it later on. But all, every one of them, not, not, not to a T, if you asked them a question, they would take the time to answer whatever that was. And, and at least on a couple of occasions for me, were very eager to point out where I was screwing up. So uh, they, they, they told me, very professional, very matter of fact, that's not the way this happens. This is the way you need to do it. So. Let me tell you a quick story Go. about Dr. Gervin. Um, we were doing, you know, in part of the paramedic program, you, you get the didactic lectures in class, but then you go out and you do your clinical rotations in neurology and psychology and pediatrics and every other, every other discipline there. And I was working in the trauma ER one day doing a clinical rotation. One of the squads brought in a lady who had fallen down the steps and had broken some ribs and she had a tension pneumothorax, life-threatening condition. And I'm standing right there, and all these medical students are crowding in, jockeying for position, like boxing <laughs> out on a rebound in basketball, trying to get in to do the thing. It's a fun show to watch, too, man. And Dr. Gervin <laughs> said, Harry, come here. He was right there. Come here. He says, I want you to decompress this lady's chest. She's got a developing tension pneumothorax. We need to decompress her right now. 
I said, me? I assumed he'd let one of these medical students do it. He said, y'all get back. I want to let Harry do this. So I got a chance to decompress that chest in the ER. In front of medical students. Showing the medical students how to do it. And that was so neat. And then the first intubation I got was actually in the um, endotracheal intubation I got was in the OR at MCV, Mm -hmm. uh, part of my clinical rotations. And we had a lady who was getting ready to have back surgery and a grandmotherly type, and I'm speaking with her. And the, the anesthesiologist said, are you ready? I said, yes, sir, I'm ready. He said, do you feel comfortable? I said, yes, sir, I think I can do it okay. And I'm thinking to myself, to this lady, you seem like such a sweet lady. <laughs> sweet lady. You have no idea. In just idea. a few minutes, I'm going to be putting a tube down your throat to help you keep your airway open. But anyway, long and short of this, they, uh, they sedated her, and they said, go ahead. And I was able to get the tube on the first try, and I, I felt so good. And he said, good job, young man. It made me feel good, Robbie. Yeah, you know? that, that- – that whole institution, I, I flash back to very similar scenarios. And this was, I had gotten on med flight, and this was before they allowed medics in the field to do intubation. So we, med flight paramedics, were kind of out on the bleeding edge of stuff. And um, Fred said, okay, you're going to med flight as of tomorrow, Monday. Report to Dr. Gervin in the ER for a couple of months of training with him. And he set me up for like two days of with an anesthesiologist. And both days, he, this anesthesiologist was working two OR rooms side by side doing tonsils and adenoids. And I think I got like 30 intubations oh in two days. <laughs> but it was fun. I mean, it was good because the anesthesiologist was awesome. He let me he let me do everything but one, I think. One of the adults it was a really tough one. And he, he did it and walked me through it as he mm-hmm. did it and said, here's why. Yeah. Uh, but in the first thing in the morning, they start with the adults, and the longer you go in the day, the younger the ki- the patients got. So by the end of the day, I was intubating you know three and four year olds. But nothing like that experience, and None you had the assurance of knowing you've got other people as backup as opposed to on the street. It's you, yeah, maybe your partner. It, you better get it because there's nobody and else. And the first one in yeah. the field's like, where did anesthesiologist go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you one more story about about learning in that trauma room is. Uh, Mike Brigatti was just getting his CT cut loose, and he and I were on the truck one day, and we ran this kid down in one of the apartment complexes. He had been stabbed right in the upper chest and caught his inferior vena cava. The, the kid was really dead for all intents and purposes. He bled out before we got there, but he was still alive. We got him to the hospital, got him to MCV, and they did. They cracked his chest and did. We're doing open heart massage, and when we walked in the door, I knew what was coming. I gave Mike Brigatti the bag. We intubated him. I said, don't let go of this bag. You're going to ventilate this kid until I tell you to stop. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, okay, why? I said, just just keep bagging and watch what happens. Mm-hmm. And they opened this guy's sternum up, and the, you can see lungs, and Mike Brigatti's eyes are about you know, big around his pie plates. <laughs> I bet they and, were. And he's not bagging. I said, hey, Mike, squeeze that bag a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Starts ventilating the patient again. So it was, it was one of those eye-opening. You, you, to go into that environment, if you've never been there before, it really is a – holy crap you don't don't get your fingers in the way because you might lose one with the that average crime. civilian has no, no idea, idea what we see You're exactly right. and what we have seen yeah well where else did your career take you you mentioned chestfield what got you into from delivering care in the streets to doing the teaching piece of it because that's a big part of what you did well i worked the streets for 20 years as a member of the south side virginia emergency crew in petersburg which was volunteer so I was working a job in the private sector to put bread on the table. Doing CPA stuff? Uh, no, not, I was doing business-related. <laughs> okay. I, was, I was an insurance agent okay. with a large, well-known company nationwide in scope. And um, I thought that was going to be my career because I had my degree in accounting and business. I thought that was going to be my career. And I 
like some guys have a bowling night out or something. My little night out was once a n- one week a night with the squad, running calls and camaraderie and having fun, hopefully learning something, hopefully making a positive difference in people's lives. And then in about the 15th year, I happened to meet uh, one of the field supervisors from Chesterfield Fire and EMS at a social event, a fellow named Jim Kelly. Jim, Jim Kelly. And uh, we, we hit it off well and started talking. And I said, Jim, I'd like to ride along with you one day uh, in, in a field supervisor capacity and just observe the Chesterfield system to see how it's different than what I'm used to in a much, much smaller place. Oh, great, Harry, come on. So we set up a time, and I rode with him, and he took me by fire administration and introduced me to all the brass and hello, how do you do, and what have you, and ran several calls with him. It was a very productive day, and at the end of the night, end of the shift, I said, well, thanks, Jim, I appreciate it, and I went my way, and he went his. And just a few months later, he called me, and he said, Harry, are you an EMT instructor? I said, yeah, Jim, I am, but I don't have any true teaching experience other than three or four hours, five or six hours here or there because I'm working 60 to 80 hours a week running my independent, not independent, but my insurance agency. Mm-hmm. I just don't have time being a sole proprietor. And he said, well, we've created a position for an EMS training coordinator, and with your background in sales and being able to talk to people and your background in EMS of 15, 16 years, we, and an EMT instructor, we think... Uh, it might be something you might want to look at and I said well Jim I you know my wife and I are expecting our first child very soon and I can't start over at another entry-level at an entry-level position I was 36 seven years old at the time and he goes no this is mid-level management position why don't you take a look at it you might like it I said okay so I took a look at it and the more I looked at it the more attractive it got long story short I turned around and applied for the job and they called me for the first interview. And I had come from a sales position, Robbie, where I had customers that were multimillionaires and others that were broke as could be and everybody in between, truly the prince and the pauper, so mm-hmm. to speak. And I felt like I could talk to anybody. When you're in sales, you gotta sell to make a living. So I went into it totally cool, calm, and relaxed. And when we did the interview, for some reason, when I finished, I was nervous as a dickens. I thought I had messed it up. And so I got back to my office, which was four miles from the interview site and I called them thinking I'm going to get the answer machine of the people that just interviewed me because mm. they had the next candidate apparently they took a break so when I called Captain Mike Haddon answered the phone he says training Captain Haddon I said Captain Haddon this is Harry Baird I just interviewed with you 10 minutes ago I wanted to call you and thank you for the opportunity Really impressed with your organization. Hope you'll give me the opportunity for a second interview, thinking that I had crashed and burned, yeah. okay? He said, well, we're going to interview the other candidates. If you're still in the hunt, we'll get back to you. Well, a week or two later, they called me for a second interview. The second interview, it was just two of them, Steve Houston, who was the EMS director at the time, and Captain Mike Haddon. They talked to me, Robbie, for an hour and 20 minutes. And it was like we had known each other forever. I was totally cool, calm, and collected. The first time I felt as nervous as a kid on his first date. But apparently I wasn't, because they liked me well enough to call me back a second time. Second interview, it, it looked good. And I walked out of there thinking, daggone, I think I might get this job. A few days later, they called it and offered it to me, and I jumped on it. I never looked back. Never looked back. 28 years and four months. I loved it. I, I got up every day looking forward to going to work. Well, I tell you, I, didn't, I did not know the history of your, your insurance sales background, but I, seeing it, hearing about it now and knowing the interactions I had while, while working, it's, it's clear you, can, you could 
sell snowballs to Eskimos, <laughs> I think, Harry. That's well, I hope at the end of this podcast I can sell our listeners on the idea of supporting this worthy cause and that we're going to talk no about. No doubt it's a huge one. So uh, well, let's, let's kind of get to that. Um, if uh, anybody wants to go back and listen to episode number 40, uh, published in March of last year, yeah, March uh, last year that episode came out with a group of Petersburg firefighters that um, we talked about a, a tragic incident that happened on March 19, 1982, that took uh, the life of firefighter or Sergeant Mike Golf out of the city of Petersburg. And uh, Harry, you know Mike, knew Mike really well, and there's some history there and, and what's going on today, 40 plus years later. Uh, but let's go back and talk a little bit about Mike. How did you, how did you and Mike get together? I joined the South South Virginia Emergency Crew, the rescue squad I alluded to earlier, in May of 1976. Mike joined two years later in 1978. He was in the squad with us for four years until 1982 when he was killed in the line of duty. I will uh, ask you in advance, Robbie. Take your time, Harry. We're good, buddy. I love Mike like a brother. And even though it's been 41 years, it's very difficult for me to talk through this even today. Um, I'll ask you in advance, your uh, listeners in advance to bear with me. There's times I can be tough as a bucket of cut nails, but there's other times that uh, when you get hurt emotionally like I was with the loss of Mike, it just takes you right to your knees. Um, that, so just Mike, show, that just shows you're human, brother. That's yeah. all it says. Well, Mike joined the rescue squad two years after I got in. He was a paid or career firefighter in the city of Petersburg. So were you, were you paid with Southside? Because they had a couple of paid people there. I was at one time. Okay. But when I, I'll come back to that in a second, but I got in in 76, Mike got in in 78. At the time that he got in, he was a career paid firefighter in the city of Petersburg, and that's who he was working for at the time of his death four years later. He was also a volunteer firefighter in our neighboring city to the north, the city of Colonial Heights, Virginia, which at that time, my rescue squad covered both, both Petersburg cities, yeah. and Colonial Heights. And Mike was a volunteer in the squad with us. So he was in three fire and or EMS agencies. Um, most of my 20 years with the squad were volunteer. However, there was a period of time after I finished college in 1979, there was a four-year period where I worked on a unit known as Rescue 7. Today, you would refer to that as Ambulance or Medic 7. Mm. Um, back then, we didn't have many. We had about 40 volunteers and two paid people. The two paid people worked on a non-emergency unit. So I'll give you an example. Say you and I were on uh, Ambulance 1 or Rescue 1. We would go out on a call, and then if the person had fallen and broken a hip, for example, we would take them to the hospital. After they had surgery and rehabbed and were discharged, if they lived in our service area, the two people on Rescue 7 would pick them up and transfer them back to their home or to a rehab center, a non-emergency transport, if you will. But back in the day, help was so scarce. We would assign Robbie to Rescue 1, Harry, for example, to Rescue 2, and it was your responsibility to find a partner. Well, you know, help was so scarce. If you didn't have an off-duty firefighter who was in the squad to ride with you, or if you didn't have a shift worker at one of the industrial plants nearby to ride with you, um, you would call Rescue 7 for backup, okay? No, so if my partner and I were not on a call, and Robbie got a call on Rescue 1, say a seizure for the sake of argument, and you respond and it required transport, 
you would call us for backup. We'd come in, we'd drop a man off to go with you, and then I would be free to back up rescue two if a second call came in, okay? So we kind of borrowed from Peter to pay Paul, and I did that for four years. And there's an interesting story about that because it was a couple of times my partner had to take a day off and Mike filled in. Uh, he was interested in meeting some mm. of the nurses at the hospital, which we'll come back to <laughs> later. <laughs> I understand he was, a, he was a bit he, of a player. He was a ladies' man, but I can tell you about that later. But anyway... Mike got in the squad with us, and he and I immediately became friends. He had a truly effervescent personality. He was handsome, young. He was two years older than me. He was 29 when he died. I was 27. He's a um, great personality. I mean, the guys just loved him to death, the fire guys, the EMS guys, and like I said, the ladies, the girls. Just It was like they were drawn to him like a magnet. Some guys got it. Most of us don't. But he did. It was the darndest thing I ever saw, man. The women loved him to death. And I could tell you some tales about that with, with Mike, but he, he was just an all-around fun-loving guy and a great EMT. He had a heart as big as Texas. He was one of those rare people that would take the shirt off his back to give somebody if they truly needed it. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, again, I can give you a couple case studies there of things I witnessed him do to help people in their time of need. But anyway, I was on the Rescue 7 unit for four years from 80, I'm sorry, 79 to 83. Then I went in the private sector with my insurance agent for nine years, and then I got hired by Chesterfield in April of 1992. Gotcha. So how did, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier you never rode, rode, ridden, ridden, riding? You've never been on a fire truck or never been in a, in a burning building, but uh, the business as it is, everybody's still really close, close-knit, and obviously you were close to Mike. Um, Tell me a little bit more about his history. It was, uh, you know, you say he was a ladies' man. I, I think they told some stories about going down on the lake in boats. Yes. Mike um, actually lived in Colonial Heights, the other town I told you we, right. we provided service for at the time. And Mike uh, was a volunteer firefighter there, career in Petersburg, and volunteer with the South Suburban Emergency Crew. But there's a huge lake just south of Petersburg in Dinwiddie County, the next county to our south called Lake Chesden, and it, C-H-E-S-D-I-N, and it provides the water supply for southern Chesterfield County as well as the city of Colonial Heights and Petersburg and Dinwiddie. And there are several marinas around Lake Chesden. I mean, it's been there for 50 years. It's a huge mm-hmm. place, beautiful lake. And people go there water ski and boating, fishing, what have you. And Mike had a trailer, mobile home, up at Whippernock Marina. And he used to invite all the guys up there from time to time, and they'd have cookouts, and he'd take them water skiing and this and that and what have you. And he took my wife and I water skiing with him the Memorial Day weekend the year before he died. So it would have been Memorial Day 1981, and mm-hmm. 10 months later in March of 82 is when he was killed. But Mike Mike was a—you want to hear about the ladies, man? <laughs> he had—listen to this, Robbie. You'll love this. He had a— about a 78 or 79 Pontiac Firebird, not a Trans Am, a Firebird. That thing was good looking, white, three or four speed manual transmission. It had red interior and T-tops. And he used to put his sunglasses on and he would say, I'm going sporting. <laughs> S-P-O-R-T-I-D, I'm going sporting. sporting. Going sporting. And he, he, or he'd say, come on, let's go sporting. So let's sport around. And we'd get in the car. We'd just take the tops out of the summer nights. You know, we'd be cruising and sporting around. Cruising Colonial Heights and Petersburg. Yeah, we did. And Mike Mike was uh, 
quite the ladies' man. When I was working on Rescue 7, it was a Monday through Friday, 8 to 5 kind of job, running non-emergency transports. But again, like I said, we would run constantly all day long. We'd be backing up Rescue 1 and 2 because there was no manpower. This one particular day, my partner on Rescue 7 had a doctor's appointment or something and had to take off. Well, I called Mike. I said, look, I need a partner for the day. I know we're going to get calls. We run four or five NETs at non-emergency transports a day. Would you like to ride with me? He goes, yeah, I'll ride with you. So two buddies riding together, you know, doing the job. And uh, the nature of my job took me in the hospital a lot. So I interfaced with a lot of the nurses throughout the hospital. And Mike says, who is that? <laughs> I don't want to say the name for confidentiality well, tell, reasons. Tell me after I hit stop. We'll I'll just say uh, Jane Doe. <laughs> and he says, who is that? And I said, oh, that's Jane Doe. She works in such and such unit here. Man, I want to go out with her. Will you introduce me to her? I said, sure, I will. So we go by her office. You know, he wasn't bashful in the least. I'd have been <laughs> too reserved to do it. But he goes, I go in and I said, hey, uh, Jane, I want you to meet my colleague for today, Mike Goff. And he creates a little small talk, and he wasn't long into it, not three minutes. And he goes, hey, Jane, would you like to go out sometime? And she <laughs> says, no, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> and you know what he said? Crushed. This is what he said, the verbatim. This was his response. I thrive on rejection. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, the next day, I get a phone call from Jane. Harry, can I talk to you for a minute? Sure. She says, guess what I just had delivered to my office? I said, I have no idea. She said, roses. I said, roses? <laughs> yeah, your buddy Mike sent them to me. <laughs> I said, really? I said, well, he, he is a ladies' man, and he was very interested in going out with you. I'm sorry you didn't accept. She goes, well, that's okay. I just want to let you know I got the roses. Okay, great. Robbie, I'm telling you, it wasn't a week later. I had gone to bed one night. About 11 o'clock at night, summertime, I had the windows up. You got to remember, Mike drove this Pontiac Firebird with loud mufflers, boo, 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 okay? And all of a sudden, I hear this car pull in my driveway right beneath my bedroom window, eight feet away, and I hear this, boo, 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 boo. And, I th and he goes, Harry, Harry. And I'm thinking, who the <laughs> devil is that? And I look out. I said, Mike, is that you? He goes, yeah, we're here. We? Came, we're here. We came to see you. I said, who's we? He turns the overhead light in his car. He had the T-tops out, but he turned the overhead light on so we could see a little bit. And who do I see sitting in the passenger seat but Jane? Jane Doe. There we go. <laughs> so he was a ladies' man. And he didn't take no for an answer, apparently. And he, he was a persistent son of a gun. He didn't take no for an answer. They went out a few times, but Mike dated a lot of different girls. But he, the women just loved him to death. And, and since we're talking about Mike, let, let me tell you a little bit of, of the kind of guy he was. Um, and if you want to talk about a couple calls, I can do that. But yeah. to show the kind of guy he was, you got to remember now, we were all single. We were all in our 20s. We all had responsible jobs, so we had a little bit of disposable income. We weren't broke. And, you know, we were at the age where we, we liked pretty women, okay? And Mike was the king of the pack. He loved the women. The women loved him. There was restaurants in our area at the time known as Shoney's, big boy restaurant. And we went down there one night. Oftentimes when the duty crews would come on, we'd have a meal together. And we didn't eat at the squad building or at the firehouse. We would, we would go to the local Shoney's and get a decent meal and socialize. If we got a call, we left. But usually we could eat in an hour or so and be okay. 
Well, we're at Shoney's one night. It was approaching Christmas. And Mike said to the waitress, just creating small talk, he says, well, I'll say Jane again. Jane, what do you want for Christmas? Sounded to bring you for Christmas. She goes, man, I'd love to have the such and such bicycle. And then she goes into this very descriptive description. You know, so many speeds and such a height and such a color. And all. She's describing it perfectly, what her wish was. And at the end of the description, she goes, but that's not going to happen. And Mike goes, why not? She goes, because it's taking every dime I'm making to be able to pay my bills, keep a roof over my head in my apartment, and to eat and take care of her mother who was had some health issues. And, uh, and he says, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but you seem like such a nice person. And he wasn't hitting on her. Mm-hmm. He, this was just the, his nature, how he was. So we finish eating, we give her a tip, and we leave, and we get back to the unit. And he goes, he says, what do you think about us going in 50-50 and buying that bike? So um, I was ashamed that I wasn't the one to think of it. So we talked about it. The next day, we went and bought that bicycle for that girl. And we went back to the restaurant a day or two later, and we said, hey, uh, can you give us your address where you and your mom live? We'd like to stop by and say hello, meet your mom. We've got something we want to show you. So sure enough, we went by the house at the pre-agreed upon time, and we uh, had her close her eyes, and we brought that bike up, and tears the size of silver dollars streamed down both cheeks. You would have thought we gave her a million dollars, Robbie. It was uh, such a great feeling to be able to do that for somebody in need. And that's the kind of guy Mike was. Like I said, I'm ashamed that I wasn't the one to think of it, but he that's just the kind of guy he was. He was willing to take money out of his pocket to, to buy that girl a bicycle. And I just thought that spoke volumes of his kind of person he was. Yeah, it's, um, some of the guys from Petersburg told a story on episode 40. About, very same thing, very very similar thing. as a uh, fellow that was in a tractor trailer in Petersburg, stopped at the fire station to ask for directions to the hospital. And uh, Mike said, well, it's down this street, down this turn, blah, 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 wherever, wherever the hospital is. He said, why? He goes, well, a buddy of mine's in the hospital. I'm going to go visit him. And he goes, well, you can't get that tractor trailer down here. Here, take my Trans Am. Gives a tractor trailer driver he just met in like 30 seconds before the keys to his Trans Am. The guy goes to the hospital, sees his buddy in the hospital, and brings his Trans Am back. And uh, I think both of those stories, I'm I wish I, I never, I, you know, I didn't get into fire service until after he, after that incident in Petersburg, the Franklin Street fire. And, you know, yeah, hearing the stories from you and those guys just make me wish I'd known, known the fellow. <laughs> you know, I, I, re- I remember that story. I was going to share that story yeah. with you as yeah. well. I'm glad the other guys did. did. But that actually did happen. Um, uh, yep, that sure did. <laughs> well, uh, the, the guys from Petersburg talked about the fire itself uh, a bunch. A um, year and a half ago, we published that episode on the anniversary of the, the fire on March 19th. So uh, that's on there. I'll let those guys kind of keep that story, keep that story alive for a few people who want to go listen to it. But uh, the aftermath of the tragedy is kind of what you're involved with now. You want to go down that path, or you got another Mike Golf story you want to tell? Um, let me tell you one. You'll get All a right. kick out of this we'll story, and then we'll go there down we go. that then path. Then we'll go down that path. Um, keep in mind that years ago we had you on Rescue One, John Doe on Rescue 2 and my partner me on Rescue 7. This is during the daytime. At night, it was just four people on. Anyway, one day we got a call at, I have to use a fictitious name, XYZ um, wine manufacturer for somebody trapped in a wine vat. It was like <laughs> 2 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Well, I don't drink, so I'm extremely ignorant on the subject of how it's made and the process and all that. But we get dispatched. Engine 2, Rescue 1, Rescue 7, respond such and such address, XYZ company, man trapped in a wine vat. So everybody back then, we didn't have cell phones. We had pagers on our hips. Mm -hmm. So people that were at home could hear the radio traffic. And they heard us responding, and those that were really squirrely, I call them, you know, gung-ho, oftentimes if it was a serious call, would come out of the woodwork for manpower, and we were grateful to see them. <laughs> well, if you know the area, Colonial Heights is just north of Petersburg. Mike lived in Colonial Heights. He was off duty at the fire station. And there was a pretty significant hill heading north to south coming from Colonial Heights into the city of Petersburg. Well, I'm in Petersburg responding from the squad building. And we're getting it pretty good. Priority one, lights and siren. Well, back in the day, we called it code three. But lights and siren, and we're getting it. And we're the first ambulance rolling in, my partner and me. And I look up. And you got to remember the old Kojak TV show with mm -hmm. Telly and had to hit that fireball. The fireball on the roof, yeah. So some of the members back then had fireballs, and some had grill lights. But anyway, my man, some Mike. Had fireballs and grill lights. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the code of Virginia says two or fewer lights. Yeah. But nonetheless, anyway. Mike is coming southbound. I didn't know who it was. I'm lights and siren, headlights on. I'm looking straight ahead, focusing like a laser, being safe driving, trying to expedite getting to this call because I'm thinking it's a potential life threat. And I'm the first one to get to the bridge, to make the turn off the bridge to go to this place, this location. And I look up, and what's coming to me, like two cars playing chicken, back in the 50s, I see this white car coming towards me at a high rate of speed, headlights on, and I see the nose of the car, the hood of the car starting to dip down. And I'm thinking, what the devil is that? And I realized the person who was driving was pumping the brakes trying to stop. And then I see this fireball, <laughs> and I said, that's got to be Mike. And sure enough, I'm saying to myself, I got the right away, Mike. You got to yield. You got to yield. Just don't have a collision here. And we got in almost simultaneously, but I got in first. He came behind me. We go in there. We walk into the place. Engine 2 rolls up. They're already full turnout gear, masked up and everything. We go in, and the manager says, there's a 20-year-old kid at the bottom of the wine vat. And I see this porthole on the side of the wine vat like you see on a cruise ship. And it must have been 12, 18 inches in diameter. And I thought, holy mackerel, man, how are we going to get in there? How are you going to get him out? And, and I said, where's the entrance? And he goes, because I knew you couldn't get in that way. And he goes, you got to go up on the catwalk. So meanwhile, back at the ranch, we had some additional people responding. One guy was a member, lived, worked at a Chevrolet dealership two blocks away. So he, he squirreled it from work. He came over, civilian clothes. So they grabbed the Stokes basket and some rope and other material, basic materials we needed, oxygen and what have you, and we climb up on this catwalk to be able to get to the tank from the top. Well, the one of the firefighters off of Engine 2 in Petersburg has got his air pack on and everything. He repels down inside the tank, secures this guy with a safety belt, the two of them together, and the rest of us, and you thank God we were younger, 40 years younger, and we were Stra strapping young lads. Working out strapping young lads at the time, and we're pulling the two of them together with in excess of 300 pounds, probably closer to four, okay? Jeez. 180 pounds apiece, 360 pounds. We're going hand over hand over hand, all of us synchronously, is that right? Yeah. The way you said, to physically muscle them out of the tank. We get them out, 
of course, by this time, you know, we were all dressed up and gussied up in uniforms, looking pristine. And we had worked like crazy to get them out. We're all dirty and sweating like we'd been in a sauna, had grease and dirt all over us. We got them out, got the guy in the Stokes basket, did initial treatment. We're walking down the catwalk with not four inches on either side to spare. I mean, <laughs> it was a risky rescue. Anyway, we get the guy out. The kid survived. And we get him outside, and we come down, and we're about 10 feet from the door to exit the, the building, the warehouse that this was in. And as we're exiting, we hand off to some of our incoming people who have responded from home, who are clean as crystal, yeah. okay? We're dirty and filthy. It looked like we've been playing in a mud bowl or something. Anyway, we hand them off. Thanks, guys. And we were exhausted. They take the kid out. They get 10 feet outside the door. And as we approach the door, what do we see but two of the local TV stations broadcasting <laughs> live? I look at Mike and I said, isn't that some stuff, man? We've worked ourselves to death and somebody else is getting on television. They're getting all the glory. They're getting all the glory. But I just I thought that was a neat story about old Mike. Uh, but he was coming from home to help. You know, that's the kind of guy he was. He, yeah. he would have been there in a minute for any of us. Um, just as nice a guy as you'll ever want to meet. Yeah, well, the, uh, after his loss, you and I think it's a bunch of people because I see I've seen some uh, old newspaper clippings of it, and Glenn Dean was in one of the pictures I saw. I looked at the other day when I was getting ready for this, and yeah, there's a, um, a memorial scholarship fund in Mike's name. It's been around since then, 41 years worth of the scholarship fund uh, that you're deeply involved with now to yeah. memorialize Mike. What uh, what's up with that? Well, as you said, Robbie, shortly after Mike's death, and I'm telling you, we were devastated. There was um, 25 people injured. We literally had a mass mm -hmm. casualty incident on our hand. Uh, everybody survived, with the exception of Mike and a lady who was trying to rescue. We had a gas line rupture, and the whole three-story masonry building came down, similar to the World Trade Center in New York on 9-11. It was awful. I mean, in the blink of an eye, the whole city firefighting crew was decimated. We had to put out a mayday distress call. And, uh, you know, the good news is that within uh, a matter of minutes, we had probably 100 fire and EMS personnel from six neighboring jurisdictions who flooded the area to help us, and they saved us that night. I mean, we had, we had multiple firefighters down in the street, burned, broken bones. Uh, the captain, the company officer off the truck company, had a fractured pelvis, was in the hospital for four months. The chief himself was hurt. I mean, it was only by the grace of God we didn't lose the whole battalion. Um, they put out an all-call. They activated all the fire, off-duty fire people back. They called in all off-duty EMS personnel, which was me. I had just gotten off at 5 o'clock that day. The call came in at 1639 hours, and um, it, was, it was a disaster. It was horrible. Uh, hot, we, we got the patients treated, transported, and uh, triage treated, transported, and uh, we were just devastated with the loss of Mike. Uh, he was killed from traumatic asphyxia when the building collapsed on him and crushed him. Um, a scholarship fund was created in his honor and in his memory to provide scholarships to further the education of the young people interested in a career in fire and OEMS. There were a board of directors which created, and they have maintained that scholarship fund for 41 years now, and they uh, did an initial fundraising shortly after Mike's death, and that's the only one they'd ever done. About a year and a half ago, Glenn Dean, who you alluded to, and I were asked, would we join their board of directors with the existing people? And we did, and we've tried to do some things to um, 
uh, enhance the scholarship fund and further the cause with the people that's already on the board, which have done a magnificent job for 41 years to, to keep it going. And these were all guys who worked with Mike back in the day, mm -hmm. and Glenn did as well. Any case, we've decided to have a fundraiser to raise money for the scholarship. So there's a place on the outskirts of Petersburg called the Appomattox Small Boat Harbor. It's about three miles from Petersburg and Colonial Heights. It's physically located in Prince George County off the Temple Avenue extension. And it's along the Appomattox River. It's a beautiful venue. And they have a series of concerts every Saturday during the summer months. And they call it the Harbor Blast Concert Series. So our board of directors and our advisory council of members, mostly police, fire, and EMS, and some civilians who are interested in furthering the cause and supporting the cause, agreed to put on a benefit concert out there. So we approached the Harbor Blast Committee, and they graciously agreed to let us use the facility, and we contacted a big-name band, Ron Moody and the Centaurs, to see if they would come play for us because we felt like if we got a big name band we could hopefully draw a bigger crowd so Ron and his band made a huge donation to the scholarship fund and they also agreed to come play for us so we're going to have this fundraiser Harbor Blast concert series it's going to be on Saturday September the 23rd gates open at 4 the band plays from 7 until 10 p.m. Ron and the guys back in 1969 had a big hit record you're going to sing it now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Called If I Didn't Have a Dime. And they had great success with that. It's a very upbeat tempo song. It's kind you want to just get out and move to. But anyway, Ron and the guys are coming in to play for us or play with us, and we're looking so forward to it. 100% of the ticket sales go to the scholarship fund. And as I said, this is the first fundraiser we've had in 41 years. And I'm hoping we can make a ton of money for the scholarships. Scholarships have given, been given out on an annual basis every year for the last 41 years. And if you go to my page on Facebook, Harry Baird, I'm, there are multiple Harry Bairds, but I'm the one in the white shorts and the red shirt. And I made an announcement last Friday morning, August the 4th at 8 a.m. I made an announcement about the Harbor Blast series I talked about who Mike was, a little bit about the Franklin Street fire when he lost his life, and the importance of sharing this information with your friends on Facebook. We're trying to disseminate the information to as many people as we possibly can. We want to draw a huge crowd, or as they say, pack the house. Only thing that people have to do is um, bring a lawn chair or a blanket because we're out in an open field right yeah. beside the river. It's a great, a beautiful venue. It's a nice night out, clean, fun entertainment. There'll be a lot of police, fire, mostly fire and EMS people, hospital personnel. I've been contacted by the nurses in the ER that night. <clears throat> and a bunch of them are planning on coming. And we want to um, get as many of the squad guys from back in the day and many of the firefighters that were back in the day, they're retired now, but we want to get as many of them out there as we can. The tickets are $20 a piece. If they go to my page, they can contact me personally. My number is 804-898-1275. Again, 804-898-1275. They can contact me directly for tickets. Um, I'll be glad to meet them. If it's somebody out of the, the general geographical area I am, I can mail them the tickets. But it's going to be a fun event, and I hope they'll all make it. And for those that might want to support the cause but who can't physically be there, they can mail their donations to 
the Mike Goff, G-O-F-F, Mike Goff Memorial Scholarship Fund. So again, the Mike Goff Memorial Scholarship Fund. Our office address is 8206 Siding, S-I-D-I-N-G. Again, 8206 Siding Drive, Church Road, C-H-U-R-C-H Road, Virginia, 23833. So again, if you want to support the cause, we're grateful to take a check of any size, however great or however small. It all adds up to the Michael Goff or Mike Goff Memorial Scholarship Fund, 8206 Siding Road, Church Road, Virginia, 23833. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to call me. We are a an IRS-approved 501c3 charity, so your donation may be tax-deductible. But I'm telling you, the $20 for a ticket is a small price to pay for the sacrifice that Mike Goff made. All of us on the board of directors and on the advisory council are working hard to make this event be a rousing success. If it is successful as we hope it can be, we hope to make it an annual thing every year to continue to raise money for the scholarships. There are numerous people who have received the scholarship over the years who are now in the fire and or EMS business in firefighter as well as officer as well as chief positions. So it's a very worthwhile cause and we would ask you respectfully to consider making a generous donation. We appreciate your support. Here at the Turn the mic over to you, brother, and it's, uh, you couldn't have said it better right there. Um, so the scholarship fund's been around for 41 years. Do you know how many people or how much money's been given out over that window of time? Robbie, Robbie, I don't. Um, they've given scholarships every year, so there's been 40 or 41 recipients. At least 41. Um, this past year, we gave out two scholarships to two individuals that were very worthy, both active in the fire service, uh, both pursuing careers in fire and EMS, and we gave them each $1,000. Cool. Um, I don't know what they've given over the years in the past in totality. I would imagine thousands upon thousands of dollars, but I, I, I can't honestly yeah. say I don't know. Well, just uh, also a shout-out to Ron Moody. He's, uh, he's a uh, really popular band guy around Central Virginia and around, I guess, the East Coast because um, his band, Ron Moody and the Centaurs, I got to be familiar with back in my old Lakeside days. Uh, their their band would actually practice at the Lakeside Rescue Squad on I think maybe Wednesday nights or something like that. And every Wednesday night, if your crew had duty, you got a free show if you got to go upstairs and hang out with the band. And he played at our banquets uh, for a number of years. And uh, many, many a good times to his music and the band's music. And a big shout-out to Ron uh, because I know they're doing this uh, kind of out of the goodness of their heart. And it's a charity event. And if uh, – you want to hear more from Ron and listen to some of the stuff he's doing. He's uh, he's got a, a weekly radio show on Boomtown Ra- Boomtown Richmond. He plays a lot of beach music and oldies in there, so uh, you can go to boomtownrichmond.com and uh, see where his shows plays every Saturday night at six o'clock. So uh, big shout out to Ron and thanks for the support for uh, for Lakeside and all the years and for the Mike Golf Memorial Scholarship Fund. So uh, appreciate that. Anything else you want to share with the, the crowd, Harry? Robbie, you give me one second here, and i got two things to tell you, brother. I will, I'm so busy trying to type this thing on YouTube <laughs> here because I don't want to sing a cappella, but I want to let your listeners listen to a little bit of – Man, we got to get we got to get permission from Ron Moody before we put that on there. That's copyrighted you stuff. So, so? Yeah. I think he'd love it. 
Well, you tell him to do this. All right. Well, you tell him we did it, and then uh, if he if he vetoes it, then we'll. Uh... I tell you what. Let's see. Tell you what we'll do. Try not to mess up your airtime. Um, what I was going to tell you one last thing here, Robbie, and that is that Mike loved to have a good time and loved to be in the center of a party. If Mike was living, he would be the first one to buy a ticket and be at this shindig. I'm telling you, he is something. He he would have loved it. Let me see if I can pull I got up. got it right here. Let me see if I can pull up a couple of bars of if I didn't have a dime for you. Put it close. I've always wanted to sing with Ron Moody. I guess this is my time, right? This is it. I didn't have a dime, and I didn't take the time to play the jukebox. Saturday night would be a sad and lonely night for me. All right, if you want to hear more of if that you one. you were standing there with your lips and golden hair beside the jukebox, play the jukebox. I'd have lost my chance to hold you while you dance with me. <laughs> there you go. How about right. that? If you want to hear that live with Harry Baird playing with Ron Moody and the Centaurs come uh, September 23rd, <laughs> get your tickets now to the Appomattox Small Boat uh, Harbor and the uh, Harbor Blast concert series. And if uh, the rumor has it, if somebody donates ten thousand dollars, you won't sing. Is that the? Is no, that the ten thousand dollars? I will sing. So fifty thousand to make you not sing. All right, we got you, Robbie. I'd almost stand on my head to help raise money for this cause. <laughs> I know you would, brother. All right, well, Harry, thanks. Uh, well, two things. Thanks for uh, for all you did for Chesterfield Fire and EMS. You were a tremendous educator, and you kept all of those exciting continuing ed classes truly exciting. It wasn't a boring moment when we came into training for uh, for. Con Ed or, or our training programs that we had for in-service and uh, it, in no small part thanks to the personality of the guy that was leading, leading the charge and that was you so thanks for that I appreciate your kind words thank you for the opportunity and please get you guys to support this because it's going to be a good time of clean fun fellowship with a lot of fire and EMS people I hope you'll be there I'll be there see you then sounds good buddy thank you as we let Ron Moody play us out here in the outro I want to say thanks again to Harry Baird for uh, sitting down with me today and sharing his story and sharing the story of Mike Golf and uh, the Memorial Scholarship Fund. If you have any questions me, uh, shoot me an email at firehouselogbook at gmail.com. Make sure you follow along on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where we'll post more information and uh, hopefully some uh, clips from that September 23rd Harbor Blast with Ron Moody and the Centaurs. Take care. Lost my chance to hold you while you dance with me. While the record turned, turned, we danced and buried our hearts. And after this, beneath the moon, we walked, talked, walked, and talked. And then we kissed, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. With every sweet caress, my darling, how I bless that good you bought Single.